It isn't terribly shocking that Christianity isn't viewed as all that attractive. After all, people are drawn to, to dominance. People gravitate toward greatness or stories of success, which really are, are about how much money somebody makes, how much success they enjoy in the, the work world, how many, how many wins or championships a team has, how many followers somebody has. So if the idea of success is measured on the, the basis or the metric of more or, or greater or better, Christianity isn't all that appealing, perhaps. And we have to acknowledge, too, that even as Christians, we fall into this trap as well, both as we look outside in the world, but even as we measure Christianity. And, and I suppose one of the ways to, to really prove that would be to ask you, what is your idea of a successful church? I'm guessing one of the first things that you probably thought of is a big church, right? A, a church that has lots of buildings, that has a big campus that maybe requires a traffic light to get in and out of on Sunday when people were regularly going to church. A, a church that has all kinds of members, bigger, better, more, is our, de- our idea of success. Yes, even when we think about church oftentimes. Unsurprisingly, then, as we see Jesus depicted in the gospel for today, there isn't much that is attractive about our Savior as Matthew gives the details of his suffering and punishment. Keep in mind that when we look at these verses from Matthew, these are already after Jesus had been flogged. So he had already dealt with excruciating physical pain. And now on top of it, as Matthew tells us, is the the emotional and and the mental pain that comes from the way that he was being treated. Not by just a few people, as as Matthew says, but he he explains that it's a a whole company of soldiers that came in. And what did they do to him? They, They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Have you ever even just had somebody walk in on you when you were changing? And how embarrassing and how ashamed you were just to, to have somebody walk in you like that and, and then to see Jesus stripped in, in public before not just a few people, but again, a company of soldiers and whatever onlookers. Then maybe you have a little, a little idea of how shameful and embarrassing that must have been. And Matthew goes on to describe how he was treated. They mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. You know what it's like to be insulted when you believe something that you know is true, but others doubt it or don't believe you and and ridicule you and make fun of you. And it's sometimes even more painful when you do know that it's true and they make fun of you and insult you nonetheless, as the soldiers were in, in making a mockery of Jesus being a king. And then Matthew goes on, they're not done yet ridiculing him. They spit on him and they beat him on the head again. And again, I don't know that you've ever been spit on by somebody other than maybe a a toddler inadvertently or somebody speaking to you too closely unintentionally, but to be spit on, there's nothing more demeaning, more defiant than being spit on. And that's what Jesus endured in in these verses described from Matthew's account. So nothing terribly attractive in that account for us, and it leaves us kind of wondering, how, how do you feel about this account? Well, I think initially we'd all agree that it, it makes us feel pity, pity for Jesus. We feel sorry for him, but, but I wonder if that's it. I wonder if that pity quickly kind of 
dissipates and gives way to perhaps another emotion that we don't maybe readily come to grips with, a feeling of disappointment, being disappointed in Jesus. And maybe you've never considered that, but, but give thought to two possible reasons why. On the one hand, Jesus, of course, is the one individual who could actually have done something about the ridicule and the mockery that he was enduring in these verses from Matthew. That Jesus could, had, he's the only person in history, in fact, that could have turned the tables on those who were bullying him and ridicule and mocking him, and he could have done the same very thing to them and put them in their place. He could have, he could have humiliated them. He could have embarrassed them, put them to shame. He could have physically harmed them. We're accustomed to that. In fact, we watch movies and read books about the good guy getting the bad guy and giving the bad guys what they deserve. And Jesus could have done that in a way that that we could not have even fathomed. He could have come up with some creative mind, some creative way to, to put them to death right there on the spot that even the most demented human being had never even comprehended. Jesus had the power to do that. But he did nothing. On top of that, they deserved it. So Jesus could have done something but didn't, and And then those individuals crucifying him, those ridiculing and mocking him, they deserved that kind of justice or revenge. And yet Jesus didn't act it on them. None of us would have faulted Jesus. The the door of justice was wide open for Jesus to rush through and, and bring them to justice and put them in their place to see, again, the good guy take out the bad guys and get revenge. But he doesn't. Instead, he just takes his beating, his emotional, his mental ridicule and abuse. So again, is it really just pity that we feel as as we might be even very familiar with that account of Jesus? Uh, We're very well aware of the suffering that he endured for us, but but are we aware of the possibility that maybe it's not just pity that we feel, but rather disappointment. And, and before you answer that too quickly, give thought to how we measure or reflect things that are disappointing to us in life. After all, is that book terribly disappointing to you, the, the one that you can't put down until you read every last word? The show that, that is that disappointing to you, the one that you watch one episode and let it just cue and, and lead into the next one and the next one until there's no more to watch? Are the games that you're playing disappointing to you that you could stay on all day if you didn't have any other responsibilities? Is work, though you might complain about it, but the hours that you put into it, is it really that disappointing to you that you aren't willing to, to give it up or sacrifice it for something else? See, we show, don't we, how much time we are committed to those things that don't disappoint us, that we do enjoy. So by that metric, where does Jesus fall into the equation? Aren't we showing how disappointed we are in him by how little time we actually give him? Though we might pay lip service to him, we confess our faith, we claim to be a Christian, we, we do all the things that Christians do, and we talk about submitting to his will and him being sovereign and wanting to live and, and be governed according to his will. But really, don't we often have to acknowledge that our relationship with him has really kind of been turned on its head? 
though we claim he is our king on this Christ the King Sunday, aren't we really the ones that prefer to be in the driver's seat or trade the throne with Jesus? We'll sit on the throne and he serves us if and when we need him, which may frankly not be all that often over the course of a day or a week. In fact, isn't Jesus oftentimes like the the app on your phone, the one that you heard somebody raving about how great it was, and so you immediately downloaded it, and maybe you opened it initially and and just kind of tooled through it, and then there it sits on your phone, unused, an afterthought, forgotten about, as if it's not even there. And what do we deserve for that kind of neglect of Christ? our king. Well, well at, very, at very best, at least to be exposed as frauds in our claim to be ruled by him when really we'd rather turn the tables and have uh, ourselves be the ones in the ruling seat and have ourselves governing and dictating Jesus. But at worst, not just exposed as a fraud, but, but turned in as, as traitors, treason to the one that we claim to be ruled by, but yet pay so precious little attention to and is merely an afterthought in in governing and guiding our lives. And what's really really shocking about our, our idea of worldly glory and authority and power that we sometimes wish we would see in Jesus in this, this case of Matthew, if he would have just flexed his muscle, realize that if Jesus had chosen to show and demonstrate that kind of might and power and authority, not only then, but any time, that nobody would stand a chance. That that would actually be our undoing. That would be our demise if Jesus flexed his muscle and demonstrated his power against mankind the way that we wish he would because nobody deserves to stand a chance before him. Nobody can rightfully stand before Jesus because nobody measures up, not even the goodest of good. Our unrighteousness and our sin wouldn't stand a chance before him. So if we wanted Jesus to flex his muscle to demonstrate his power in this world, we would actually be undermining ourselves. We would be writing our own ticket to hell. That's not Jesus' idea of greatness. Jesus shows us something else. He shows us humility. Mercy. Sacrifice. Jesus' idea of greatness and of glory as our king is giving. Giving himself. That's depicted for us so many different ways in Scripture. Two particular ways. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He gave up his power, his authority. He was rich, he had everything, he is God, and yet he gave that up so that we could be rich. And think of how Paul also describes Jesus in the second chapter of Philippians. Being in very nature, God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. These are not shows of power and might and authority the way the world looks to to such things. This is God's view of greatness. It's because he could have done all those things. It's because he was all of those things and yet willingly set them aside to serve you.
Why not show his, his power and his might in another fashion? Well, in, in God's mind, he did just that. He showed and demonstrated his power and glory by setting it aside for a time to serve you. So that you could be one, so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be brought into his kingdom. And what is that kingdom? Well, it is a kingdom where, where Jesus rules, where grace and mercy are his scepter, where kindness and compassion are his crown, and where all who are ruled by him are free. Did you catch that? All who are ruled by him are free. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? You can't be free and ruled by somebody at the same time, can you? If a king rules over you, then by definition you aren't free. And yet that's exactly how Scripture speaks about Christ our King ruling over us. In the vision that the Lord gave to John, listen to how he describes it in chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. In his kingdom, we are free, even as he rules over us, for our good. If you're familiar with coaching, consulting, those, those things are, are big business these days. People, individuals, companies, organizations will hire out coaches or consultants to, to better their team or their work or their effort. Individuals do the same to help them reach their goals. Stop and think, why would somebody pay a pretty significant chunk of change to have somebody sometimes be very blunt with them and be very direct with them and, and speak hard words to them and ask them to, dis, to, to answer difficult questions and to push them beyond their comfort zone? Why would somebody willingly pay to improve, to grow? Well, for that very reason. They know it's in their best interest. They willingly put somebody over them, give somebody the authority to hold them accountable, to push them, uh, to, to do things that, that ultimately are what? in their best interest and for their good. How much more so to be ruled by Christ the King, who has not only freed us by the price of his blood, by his suffering and his death, but who also promises to rule over us in a way that, that only serves to bless us, in a way that seeks to demonstrate for us a kingdom of, as I mentioned, kindness and compassion and grace and mercy and peace and joy and all of these things that no kingdom, no ruler, no president, no authority this side of heaven can ever offer or promise us, but that Jesus himself does. You look at, at the description that Matthew gives us today of, of Jesus being ridiculed and mocked, mocked like a, a clown instead of magnified like a king, and it's not a very attractive picture, is it? But dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I assure you there is nothing more attractive than the freedom that we have in Christ and the confidence that we have in knowing that the one who freed us, Christ our King, also rules over everything for our goodness and for our blessing. Now that 
is attractive. Amen.